This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is revolutionizing how investors listen to earnings calls and conduct investment due diligence. It's basically Spotify for investors. With Quarter, you can effortlessly search for any company and quickly gain access to their latest earnings conference calls, investor day presentations, and capital markets day conferences. Quarter constantly improves its product, and its latest update is no exception. Today, you can search for keywords like free cash flow yield or return on invested capital, and Quarter will instantly index every company transcript that matches that key phrase. It's truly incredible. I'm excited to watch the Quarter team roll out more features to make my job as an investor even easier. It's one of the reasons why Quarter is the few apps that I use each and every day, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, make sure to go to quarter.com to download the app on Android or iPhone today. You'll wonder how you ever invested without it. That's quarter.com today. I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox. Or type in the keyword Metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, guys, I've got Chasing the Vig, or CTV as I'll call him throughout the podcast, uh, another anonymous uh, Twitter personality, got him on the podcast, um, and we're just going to discuss defining what matters in a stock, the arrogance of conviction, uh, what what Vig has learned from joining Twitter and curating a valuable list of followers and and interacting with a bunch of people and um, some special situations and ideas that are interesting uh, to him as well as his investment process. So uh, Vig, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So what matters most when investing in stocks? <laughs> well, I guess the uh, short answer would be uh, it depends as, as usual in all things. Um, but uh, I do like to think of it that way. 
uh, it's driven from a, a class I had in business school. And uh, really the framework is just from the outset kind of figuring out you know, what matters in a stock and you know really what that's asking is what are the drivers um and uh, you know what are the drivers in the time frame that you're looking at because it's, it's going to be different mm -hmm. uh you know is it margins is it uh you know management turning on the business uh is it this one segment that's holding them up you know whatever it is you know for example uh you know looking back at the, my previous job uh uh, they were invested in, in Haynes Brands, uh, ultimate boomer stock. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it, uh, you know, it kept going down like every quarter um, after earnings. And, uh, uh, you know, the reason was the market was worried about declining U.S. innerwear sales. So just, you know, declining U.S. underwear sales, basically. Um, so, you know, using this framework, you'd ask that question, you know, why is U.S. innerwear sales declining um, and focus your research there? What's driving? How is it going to change? You know, is it private label? Is it department store closures driving it? Is it competitors? Is it, you know, the brand stale? Um, you know, so for, for me, that class kind of just taught me to ask that from the outset um, instead of just systematically doing the same thing for every stock, kind of focusing your research on the, you know, whatever it is, three to five things that mm -hmm. drive the stock and, you know, call it the next two years or whatever. Um, but I would say, you know, it does change uh, and it can change quickly. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. So it's matching that, well, the, the time frame for the investment to the drivers, because if it's yeah. shorter than, let's say, three to five years, then the drivers of that are going to change significantly than if you're saying, Hey, I want to make a five to 10 year bet. Like what are the drivers there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and even like, you know, I was saying it changes quickly. I, you know, an, an example of that is, uh, another stock we were looking at is Molson Coors and, uh, you know, it's one of those set it and forget it kind of secular shorts. Cause, uh, you know, uh, there's a continued shift to uh, higher-end beers, declining volumes in their beer segments. Uh, market, all it cared about was the fact that it didn't have any growth, didn't care that it had free cash flow um, and all that. Now, it's really the opposite. Market doesn't care that it's you know, <laughs> declining yep. uh, a little bit every year and it has, uh, it has free cash flow and that's all that matters right now. Um, so... I mean, obviously the market environment's changed and it changed really what matters in the stock. So I just, you know, another example of how quickly things change and change the drivers. Have you noticed as you've studied this game more and gotten more reps in that the time it takes you to get to the three to five things or, you know, the one to three things that matter, that, that, that time has shrunk where let's say when you started out investing, you were, you know, it took you, let's say weeks or months to find out what really matters. Where now with pattern recognition, you're, you're able to determine those drivers much quicker. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, actually for, the, for this class that we took, there was a huge checklist that we had to, had to fill out, um, you know, to kind of try to figure out what those factors were and, 
you know, uh, probably spent like 20 hours on these names um, for each project. And, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, it depends on the stock, of course. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's gotten a lot easier. And, and uh, you know, for some stocks, it's easier than others. Um, but uh, particularly ones that are, you know, in my wheelhouse, uh, definitely it's gotten a lot easier. So let's use kind of a boilerplate example of something in your wheelhouse. How do you go from zero to identifying those three to five things? And it, it, it doesn't have to be like a concrete example, just, you know, hey, this is what I do to try to get there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people uh, don't like sell side and, and you know, uh, talk bad about the sell side and stuff, but I think just forgetting like an overall picture of what's going on in the story in the stock, like sell sides unmatched. Um, so sometimes I'll start there just to see what's going on, get a quick overview, you know, what, what is the sell side worried about? What does the sell side think investors are worried about? Um, and that can be a good start and going from there to the transcripts, um, you know, the quarterly conference transcripts, um, and that should get you a pretty good view, uh, you know, over uh, a few hours of, of reading, you know, what, what those things that matter are and, uh, you know, maybe how they're changing. Hmm. And so are you looking for like certain phrases or just certain repeat things that management brings up or analysts bring up in questions, or are you trying to develop this thesis in your head and then going through and saying, okay, I've like, I've almost like the scientific method, right? Where it's like, I've got this hypothesis and then let me go through and, 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 and see, you know, if, if, if I can invalidate this thing and then through that, you find the drivers. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the the second thing that you just said, um, you know, coming in with thesis and then trying to invalidate it is, uh, is definitely key. And uh, actually one of the, uh, things that we also learned in, the, in that class um just you know side sidebar but there's you know there's this book it's uh it's called psychology of intelligence analysis i'm not oh, sure i've got if, that i've got yeah it. okay yep it's a fantastic it, book it's crazy i feel like you know it was written by a cia, CIA officer right yeah um for cia officers but it sounds like it was written for stock analysts. oh it's insane <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's crazy. Um, but, you know, the framework in that book is super helpful too. Um, just like you said, trying to invalidate your kind of thesis. Um, but yeah, you know, that that's probably the best way to go about it. And then, you know, you know, trying to figure out what the stocks, stock reacts to, which is, I don't think there's a, a systematic way of doing that, but just kind of looking through the quarters and, and seeing, you know, how stocks reacting to earnings and, mm -hmm. and various segments or whatever, trying to piece that out. Yeah. And I think that's the complicated part about, about this game. And then when you translate it to, you know, kind of what you see on Twitter is everybody really is playing a different game and you could, you could be in the same stock, but play a completely different game where, you know, one person is trying to play um, like a six to 12 month game and, their driver is just multiple compression and someone else is trying to play the three to five, 10 year game. And their driver is, you know, 
something completely different, consumer choice, like shifting changes in, um, you know, like trade-offs or just demand and um, a brand new technology. And so that's where it becomes challenging if you're if you're having a dialogue with somebody about a company like the first thing you need to check is like hey like what's your time frame on this thing because you could be arguing about things that don't matter or something where you could be right and i could be right and we'll both end up making money but in completely different situations yeah no absolutely that's i mean that's spot on um and i would say that i don't sometimes i think people don't know what game they're playing uh which is which can be a huge problem um, so yeah, hundred percent. When you looked back at COVID and all the COVID winners, do you think it was, do you think a lot of people just over indexed to what was going on in the moment and then thought key drivers and certain COVID winners were more permanent than they were? Um, and then how do you then go back and try to learn from like, okay, I know that we're in the moment here and things look like this but the driver should be based on maybe more foundational assumptions, whether it's about like human consumption or, um, you know, just like mean reversion and base rates basically. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think that, you know, the stocks definitely got ahead of themselves. It's hard to tease out like what people thought, um, you know, maybe for the, some of the tech names, definitely yeah. people thought they were, you know, new you know new demand uh level and like peloton right like the perfect yeah yeah exactly um for other stuff it's like you know like clorox like i mean (laughs) peak multiple on peak earnings ever probably right like is clorox usage gonna accelerate uh going forward after a pandemic you know i Mm -hmm. would say probably not but um but you know that stock went up a bunch too. So it's kind of hard to tease out like, what, what, you know, how much of that was like investors actually bidding those up versus other stuff, um, algos or, or whatnot. But I mean, absolutely, uh, you know, people definitely got ahead of themselves in, in a lot of ways, I think, <laughs> during the pandemic and uh, figuring out, you know, what was going to mean revert and what wasn't. And it sure looks like almost everything has mean reverted yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think the base rates played out well this time. Yeah, which is which is crazy because what you're seeing is just price driving narrative where a year ago when these stocks were hitting all-time highs like everybody seemed to understand like oh like Peloton the future of fitness like I totally get it. People will never go back to the gyms and and everybody's going to be connected on this bike and it's not going to be a close hanger. Um, and then now all of a sudden it's down 90% and the CEO, I think is rewriting options for its employees. <laughs> so employees can invest at lower prices. It's, it's a crazy world. Yeah, dude. it's, it's so crazy to me. It, what you just said, uh, price driving narrative. And it's like, it's like a day to day thing too. It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, the uh, market goes up three days in a row and suddenly we're talking about QE and, uh, you know, whatnot and, and, uh, you know, fed easing and it's just, <laughs> and it'll go down a couple days later and suddenly we're in a, another catastrophe. So yeah, hundred percent. Part of that run up and, you know, going back to COVID winners and the, the, the subsequent bubble burst, part of that, 
roller coaster had a lot to do with arrogance of conviction, which is something that you took notes from um, in Patrick O'Shaughnessy's conversation with uh, Oswath uh, Damodoran. And I have kind of latched on to this idea that, you know, conviction is just arrogance dressed up in a nice sounding word. Um, and it's, it's something that I just, you know, constantly think about. It's like, you know, having like, what is, what does having conviction mean? Is it even valuable? Um, and does having like, do you need conviction to generate great returns? So I kind of want to spend a little bit of time on this. Um, walk us through kind of your notes from that conversation and what you thought. I, I mean, it was probably one of the best podcasts I've listened to this year, um, just because I'm a big Oswath fan. But talk me through kind of how you thought about this idea of conviction and arrogance. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It was a great podcast. Um, and this part in particular uh, spoke to me too. And, you know, conviction is something that gets thrown around a lot and uh i think there's a like a decent amount of nuance in it and you know i can't can absolutely be useful um i do think you need it to some degree uh particularly if you're making longer term you know fundamental bets on things um but you know it's it's it can be misapplied and, and used in the wrong way, in my opinion. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of funds, maybe not a lot. There's a few funds out there that people love on Twitter and, and you know people talk about that have you know 30 to 50 percent position sizes in uh, you know some of these names that like Carvana or Tesla or or uh, you know some of these others names like the disruptor names where, you know, clearly they have a lot of conviction. Um, you know, it, you would think that would be great, but I think, you know, when you're running position sizes that big, um, you know, the the amount of conviction you have is is a double-edged sword because the fact is, you know, we've seen in the last two years, I mean, crazy stuff happens in the markets and it happens all the time. And, uh, you know, you have businesses like that Tesla and Carvana, you know, you could be dead on um, about the long-term potential of those businesses, but you could still go broke because, uh, you know, the terminal value of those of those businesses is a lot less certain than something right. like Dollar General. Um, and I, I mean, I wouldn't even have a 30 to 50% position in Dollar General personally, but, you know, at least the probability of Dollar General going bankrupt is, is pretty, pretty low. Right. Uh, and I wouldn't, necessarily say the same thing about uh you know carvana obviously because uh you know things 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 have slowed down but they haven't we're not in like full bone full blown depression and uh you know what what's the stock at now um i get 30 or something i think yeah so you know i i just i think it's one of those things that people don't really think about and uh you know, people talk about how Munger lost 50% of his money in a year and volatility isn't risk. But I think that, you know, having big drawdowns not only clouds your own judgment, maybe, you know, making you play on tilt, trade trade on tilt, mm -hmm. you know, but it can hurt your confidence. It can hurt your investor's confidence. Um, and just, you know, it increases the risk of, permanently losing your capital, which, you know, 
is obviously, you know, in my opinion, that should survival should be the prime directive at all times. Uh, right. You know, if you don't survive, it <laughs> nothing you do really matters. Um, so, you know, I think avoiding uh, risk of ruin uh, is is more important than you know having huge conviction in one position. Even if you're right, like I said, it, you know, it doesn't. You can be the most intelligent person in the entire investment universe, but if you don't size it properly, um, you know, manage risk, you're gonna go broke eventually. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of time. Yeah, and, I mean, oh. Carvana is like one of the one of the good examples. Like, it could be a long term winner, and like the thesis of will people want to buy cars online, and like, do they love that experience more than going into the dealership? Like, those two things could be true, but if the business can't survive through a period of, you know, a demand pullback and, um, you know, just excessively high car prices and auto loan issues, then like they might not live to see the reality that they were right on, which is like incredibly frustrating for anybody that, you know, was betting on Carvana. Not, not saying that they won't do it because they might like, you know, they might just come through this and, you know, trough out here. And then all of a sudden, like their business model shows positive unit economics, and this will just be a blip on the radar. Um, but right now it's not a blip. It's, it's very much, you know, deeply in question, um, the terminal value of the business. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, going back to your, you know, I mean, conviction, I think it's different for a long-term fundamental guy versus if you're a trader, you don't really have to have a bunch of conviction in, in trades you know you, you set your stops uh risk rewards good you know you cut it if it doesn't work mm-hmm. you move on to the next one and you, you don't really need conviction you let the market figure it out for you so yeah again you know nuance i guess yeah and the, well that's what i think a lot of investors could learn from traders yeah. where it's just this complete agnosticism towards whatever opinion they hold and that's why guys like Druck and Miller are so good because like Druck and Miller, I mean, he even, he even said is his latest interview um, with, I think one of the Collison brothers, um, you know, he basically said, look, like my macro takes are, are pretty bad. Most of them are pretty bad, <laughs> but he finds ways to make money because he takes these views, he takes his opinions. And if he's wrong, he just, he just either dumps the position or reverses or gets on the right side of the trend. And, um, there's a lot to be said in that type of humility towards your own um, like knowledge and skill set. Because I think if there's any flaw in like the fundamental long-term value investor approach, it is um, they over-index to their own confidence and their ability to say, I'm right and the market's wrong. And, and that's really hard to do. And that doesn't happen often, but it happens more than you would think if you just listen to what investors have to say. Yeah, no, I keep agreeing with you. Um, but hundred percent, I mean, I saw it at my old firm, they were, uh, you know, very old school value yeah. investing. Um, and, uh, you know, had had good results, but it could have been so much better if they would have, you know, taken some of the lessons, uh, from traders, like you said, and, and uh avoided those big losers not double down um you know it's it's definitely something and maybe the the pot shop guys do better because they're you know 
the great imagine risk um, and they have that skill set and then they also have the fundamental kind of skill set so yeah 100 percent. how do you think about breaking a thesis from again we can go back to like the time frame you're playing because one of the other dangers i see is if you're a very long-term investor there's a lot that you can um there's a lot of theses breakers that you can avoid just by saying, Oh, well, I'm playing the longer game. And I want to make sure that there's ways. And, you know, if you've got, you know, a process of just, you know, Hey, every quarter I look for X, Y, Z and these guideposts along the way to a longer term bet. Um, but I'm just very cognizant of the danger of if I take a stance and I think, look in five to 10 years, this company is going to be much bigger for X, Y, Z. And something happens that like refutes that, um, if there's a way that you can get around that thesis breaker through the length of time that you're invested, I think that becomes very dangerous. Yeah, no. And it's, I think it's one of the toughest things to do uh, and figure out, but, you know, I guess what I would say is, uh, you know, going back to what matters, you know, if whatever you figure out what, what matters in the stock, um, if that thing starts changing in a way that's obviously detrimental to your thesis, it's time to start paying attention, <laughs> you know, closely. Um, you know, it, I guess, you know, if you're invested in a can manufacturer and, you know, you see uh, one of, obviously one thing like underlying your thesis, you know, there's not a bunch of capacity coming on that's going to, completely change the the landscape of the industry and then you know a competitor comes in the market an international competitor comes in the domestic market um that's never been here before which that would be Canpac. you know that's something that could potentially be a thesis breaker potentially um and that's you know maybe that's you know that's not written anywhere necessarily but i think you just have to use your judgment um, at the end of the day and, and decide what what can or will break your thesis and probably experience, uh, you know, comes into play a lot. What kind of um, examples do you have of, of, of thesis breaker events from your, your, you know, investing, whether it's on the long side or the short side? And a, a, a secondary question to that, which might be harder to answer, how much of those thesis breakers have to do with structural changes in the industry and competition versus the actual business itself? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I can think of a recent example. Um, this company, you know, Harsco, um, they are an environmental player um, and, uh, you know, going through a business transformation um but you know long story short they have all you know new management team comes in this thing's been kind of a 10-year turnaround that never really worked out a new management's coming in you know they're they're trying to change things have all these great targets uh set out there for you know next few years of in these segments and you know margins those long-term margins get set down, um, you know, about called a year after they set them originally. 
Then they have, you know, a couple quarters of unanticipated costs um, and earnings misses. Yep. And, you know, the the one segment that they had, they're supposed to sell, uh, which is this, this rail segment, and uh, it's probably their best business, but they want to sell it to D-Lever and, and um, uh, become a pure player in environmental space. That takes longer to recover than they thought. Um, and that happens for a few quarters when they say, oh, it, it's recovering. You know, we still have this target. You know, those, the combination of those things makes me believe that either management has zero visibility or, you know, management is incompetent. And I think that's, you know, for me, that's enough to say goodbye probably <laughs> yeah. at that point. I guess a thesis breaker. Um, but, uh, you know, I think in general, it, it is tough. Uh, and it's, I think it's tougher for people who do a ton of work on a name uh, to know when the pieces break sometimes just because, you know, they're so, they're so emotionally involved in the story too. Yeah. Well, and the other issue is, and I read, um, gosh, what was it from? From, um, I think it's the securities podcast, but I think it's Josh Wolf's Lux Capital. They've mm-hmm. got some sort of spinoff podcast and they were talking about marginal stupidity and just how, like, if you go down the rabbit hole, like if you become, you know, basically like this, I think it's the hedgehog, right? It's like the story of the fox and the hedgehog. But if you're, if you're the hedgehog and you just bury deep into one thing, like you, like the, the incremental value of the information you're consuming, the farther you go down is actually worth less and less. And like, maybe there's actually some negative utility in that because the more, you know, the more you go down, the farther you go down, the less easy it is, right, to take that 30,000 foot view. And the way I think about it is like, if I'm, if I'm constantly digging into a name and like digging into the ground, the, uh, like the path for me to go from like the hole I've dug to out of the ground to then to 30,000 feet, like that takes a much longer time than if I, you know, dig 20 or 30 feet, and then I can, you know, say, okay, let me step back. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I think that goes back to what we're talking about on, on conviction. And I think sometimes, sometimes it is better to do less work. Um, so you can bomb out of it if, if you have to, um, you know, I think some people are better than others about not having that kind of confirmation bias and, and uh, being able to emotionally separate themselves, but we're all human. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's still tough. So you're on the buy side currently, uh, but you kind of had an unusual path to it. Walk us through your non, you know, traditional, oh, I went to, you know, Stanford, then I went to two years at NIBI, and then I, you know, did my MBA, and then I came back and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You took a bit of a different path. Yeah. Um, well, I'll try not to dox myself, uh, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> without doing <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, but I, I will say, um, you know, I, I was a military officer um, for five years uh, before going to business school. And, uh, you know, I got uh, I got interested in investing in the undergrad, uh, picked up this book. Uh, it was a myth of the rational market by Justin Fox. And uh, I just got super interested. And, in, in, uh, you know, from from 
pretty much that point on, I started reading a bunch of other stuff, you know, went down the rabbit hole, probably read like every single thing on the internet, you know, investing and trading. And I think I, I actually started trading, uh, started out trading e-minis. <laughs> no clue what nice. I was doing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely no clue. Um, you know, like reading the tape or whatever, uh, you know, just, uh, I actually, uh, I ended up somehow being short during the flash crash. I remember that. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> all <you> know, skill. <laughs> squ yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, squ the squiggly lines told me to do it. Uh, you know, but, uh, so that's where I started. Uh, you know, I eventually of course got a hold of Buffett and, and Graham and yep. uh started reading all that so you know i i always wanted to always wanted to get to the buy side uh, i knew it was going to be tough i talked to some people there's not too many um ex-military on the buy side uh there's a few but you know they told me to go to business school uh, do my cfa so i did and uh you know it it was tough um it was really tough getting in um without doing like investment banking or PE and you're always competing against those people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of firms, you know, they care more about, you know, modeling skills and, you know, they won't, they won't really interview non-traditional backgrounds in the first place, which I get, you know, they, they want that skill set, and you, you just, you know, you didn't spend three years modeling. So, um, but, uh, you know, I got, I got lucky and worked my butt off and, and uh, ended up, you know, on the buy side, and so here I am. That's a that's a cool story, actually. One of the um, one of my partners at MacroOps, uh, Alex, he was a former Marine Scout sniper. So I think I saw that. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, there's something there's something about the uh, military background that I think bodes really well for investing and, 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 and trading. I mean, I can't like quite put my finger on it, but you know, that, that, that skill set, almost like, you know, a former athlete or something that, that kind of knows what it takes to, you know, get to where you want to go, having a goal and working really hard towards it. Um, you know, that kind of competitiveness, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people would say that about, uh, I guess poker players and stuff too. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Athletes, you know, same kind of story. So what does your investment process look like today? I know you're long short. Um, seems like you're kind of a generalist, but walk us through maybe your kind of ideal long and then ideal short and what both of those look like. Yeah. Um, like I said, generalist. So I do pretty much, you know, a little bit of everything except for like financials and biotech and, you know, stuff I can't, you know, really figure out or I, you know, need a specialist. Um, I do like to focus uh, on the long side on, on, uh, transformations. Um, you know, that can be like a variety of things, whether that's, you know, a turnaround of the existing business, new management, um, asset sales, divesting. Um, but really, you know, I like stuff that has catalysts personally. Um, you know, I, I guess broadly there's like two ways to think about investing there's you know the catalyst kind of approach and then there's a i'm gonna buy high quality businesses approach um and i guess you know i don't have a problem with that it, i think it's great and if you know if i was 
running a portfolio, I definitely have some of those names in the book, but I think I got a little too, too easy to do that over the last decade, you know? Um, and uh, I think it was a, a podcast with the Bal Yazny guy. Um, he said it like perfectly. He's like, you know, there's no argument. You know, it's not hard to see that Microsoft is a good business. There's, like, you know, there's no real, there's no real differentiation in that view. Um, it's really not that hard to figure out. So, you know, if, if you're running a fund, basically, you know, with uh, 10 positions and, and stuff like that, yeah, I, it's, it's hard to see how you, how you sell that to investors. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's had a huge tailwind because of low interest rates um, over the last decade. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, broadly, I just, I like things for catalysts because obviously, you know, it, hypothetically, you get to your, uh, you know, fair value faster um you know and on the short side uh, it's you know mix of mix of everything i guess recently it's been just mean reversion and just straight up factor shorts yep um yeah so you know on the short side um you know look for a bunch of different things whether it's you know deteriorating business um you know competition coming in capacity getting added just fundamental shifts in industries uh you know it's probably nothing new that I, you know i'd look for that other people don't but you know, i guess recently it's been I mean reversion from covid um you know the logitechs of the world um stuff like that you know and then just i mean the time period we're going through we've been we've really been through in the last seven months it's probably been one of the easiest times to short uh in a long time and it's like mm-hmm. you know you, you don't even need to know much uh, other than you know, <laughs> you know it sounds bad but you know just you pick your top five uh overvalued SaaS, and uh that's you're basically i mean you're making a factor bet but yeah. that's what mattered uh you know crowdstrike has been killing it uh, business-wise, it doesn't matter. Just multiple compression, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, it's it's one of those things like going back to what matters. You know, you could be the, you could spend like thousand hours modeling out CrowdStrike and what they're gonna do and the security market and all that. And it didn't matter. Yep. Um, so, you know, on the short side, shorting's tough. I feel like it's like value investing. It doesn't work. It didn't work for a long time and then it worked all at once. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> and uh, it's funny how it worked that everyone was hating on it. Um, you know, people were saying they're never going to short. And uh, yeah, I remember when are. Citron, I think it was Citron yeah. Research came out and they're like, yeah, we no longer will short. We're only going to send out. Uh, long ideas and quality compounders <laughs> or multi-baggers. It's like, that was it. Like that was the moment it was that. And then I think it was Chamath or something that said, you know, like, Hey, like, you know, shorting should be illegal. It's like, man, like that right there, like that, that was the bottom tick for shorting. Yeah. That, that was definitely it. When Citron said that, that was crazy. <laughs> I was just sitting there. I was like, Oh my God, dude. Like, uh. So why do you the think people. they did that? Was that just because they were getting so many like wrong directionally? Like in the moment they would put out a report and it just wouldn't matter. 
the stock would go up and they would look like idiots in the short term. Um, and do you think they just kind of threw their hands up? They're like, look, I like, we just don't want to play this game anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, I almost want to say they did it because they thought they thought they could make more money. Yeah. Uh, you know, pumping up whatever <laughs> flavor of the day uh, they decided to pump up to retail. Yeah. Um, Cause I think a lot of people thought the retail thing was, was here to stay too. Uh, when all that GameStop stuff was happening. Uh, obviously that, that didn't happen, but um, you know, it could be that, or like you said, it could be what you said. You know, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know what's going through their head. It's just wild. Like yeah, that to it's, it's whenever like that, that signal strength was as good as anything Jim Cramer has said, which yeah. is funny because that guy does not miss like the inverse Jim Cramer <laughs> is un, like he, he, he managed to, he managed to like top tick, the decline in the NASDAQ when he said like, you know, there's no way we're going into a recession. And then he also managed to top tick oil. So he was <laughs> like, I, I don't get how you do both of those at once. <laughs> He's good. We should make a Jim Cramer inverse ETF. It's funny because every time he says something like that, I tell myself, I'm like, just, just do the opposite. Like just put like 10 basis points of capital and just like see what happens because he's like, if you've taken the opposite side, like you've been so right so often. And every time I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. But I always look back. It's like, man, I could have shorted oil at like <laughs> 110, 120. Yeah, it would have been scary to do it. But yeah, uh, yeah it would have been right. So what ideas are you working on right now? And I know we had a question from Twitter. Some Someone asked, you know, like, what are your three top special situations slash turnaround plays. Um, so maybe if you want to give us, you know, just kind of a taste to what our palettes on, on, on what you're working on. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bearish overall still, um, on the market. I don't think there's a ton of great near-term setups and a lot of things because of that. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to just be hanging out in defensives and continue to be short kind of high rate uh long duration stuff um mixed in with some cyclicals uh but uh you know there's a couple i posted on my sub stack um relatively recently you know one of them was melrose it's a british um they're basically a publicly traded pe firm um and uh, they're turnaround specialists. They take, they buy businesses, they turn them around, improve margins, and then they sell them. And uh, most of it's done, most of the value creation is done through through margin improvement. That's what they're good at. Been doing it a long time. Uh, I think if they were US based, a lot more people would have heard of them. But uh, they bought GKN a few years ago, uh, big aerospace and, and defense company uh, also have an auto business and um you know obviously with what's going on in europe uh it got smashed earlier in the year and uh you know the reason i like this is i'm trying to hang out and stuff with catalysts right now um you know if we <laughs> if we truly go into a terrible economic environment in the next 
couple of years, everything's going to get hit. Yeah. Um, but you know, these guys is what they're going to sell these businesses. It's what they do. Um, and uh, they do have things in their control with the margin improvement and they almost always under promise and over deliver. And you have hard comps um, for, you know, what other people either offered for these businesses previously um, or, you know, just uh, other comps you know, out in the public market. And uh, these guys have a bunch of good stuff going from that. I don't think it's necessarily baked in. And I think the stock's actually up 20%, 25% in the last few months. Um, so, you know, they're, they're buying back shares. They just sold their Ergotron business. Um, they're, uh, you know, they're going to benefit from the narrow body production ramp in the aerospace. They have a great engines business. Um, which is, you know, that by itself, uh, you know, they think the net present value of those cash flows is uh, five billion. Uh, it's almost their EV at this point, I think. Yeah, which you know, so there's a bunch of this stuff. You look at it and you look, uh, you know, a little deeper, um, and you can see that you know the sum of the parts value, which isn't theoretical, right? It's you know these businesses are going to get sold. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's way higher than what the stock's trading for. Um, so that's, that's one I like. And, uh, you know, another one I liked is, uh, I actually posted recently. I liked it more before, uh, you know, recession is imminent or we're in a recession started hitting. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's another one of those where I think it's gonna fare better than others. Um, you know, it's already trading at low valuation. Uh, it's Arconic, and uh, you know, it, was, it got split from old Arconic into Howmet, which is like the aerospace, mostly the aerospace business, and, and uh, Arconic. And uh, you know, it's basically a it's a downstream aluminum processor uh, passes through hedges over 90% of the uh, underlying aluminum price. Basically, you know, it converts, it buys aluminum, converts it into a finished product. Mm -hmm. uh, they make all the uh, Boeing win wing skins. Uh, you know, they have great, great assets. You know, it's definitely cyclical, but uh, looking underneath the surface, you know, they have a bunch of things going for them. Automotive is, is uh, its largest end market. They're going to recover, you know, as the supply chain eases a little bit. Aerospace also in recovery mode. Um, they just signed a bunch of packaging agreements um, for aluminum can sheet. And uh, it, it, another thing is they got they got hit super hard because uh, they have Russian um, assets. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, not a good look. No. <laughs> so it, you know. Obviously, the stock got hit uh, super hard, um, but even despite that, and you know, buy side, buy side and sell side box it down to zero pretty much immediately. Yeah, um, they're actually looking to sell it, and they might actually get something for it, which would hmm. just be a call option. Um, either way, you know, once that's over, that's going to clear a, a key overhang. Uh, they uh, they're going to have a huge working capital benefit from aluminum prices decreasing. Um, 
and uh, they just announced that they're actually going to sell their um, Conier business as well, which is a buildings constructions uh, business. And you know, looking looking at that, you know, assuming kind of like mid-range EBITDA multiple with comps, uh, you know, they could buy back another 20% of shares outstanding uh, with those proceeds. So, mm-hmm. um, but looking underneath the surface, I mean, the numbers are going up for this. The numbers were going up despite Russian EBITDA getting knocked in yeah. half or more um, and the buying back shares, cheap valuation, uh, you know, it's something I'd, I'd rather hang out in versus uh, other things for sure. How do you think about the exit multiple that you place on on some of these names when you when you go to value them, right? Because I could sit here and say like, hey, like you know, this aluminum business, this steel business, and um, you know, they're not great businesses, uh, highly commoditized products. Sure, they may generate a bunch of cash between you know now and some you know t plus five years, um, but when it comes time to sell. Like what, what value do these actually deserve? And then, and then how do you think about that as it translates to figuring out the valuation, right? Like if this thing trades, you know, if it's trading at, um, you know, a low valuation now, you also bring into the fact like, oh, well, I thought like I should buy cyclicals, like when everything looks really expensive. And now a lot of cyclicals are printing like, you know, 10 to 40, 50% free cash flow margins. And so I'm like trying to rack my brain. It's like, oh, I thought I should invest when the free cash flow looks terrible. The free cash flow looks great. It's attracting a lot of people. Like, and then how do I think about like what's the actual value to a buyer in years five and six? And like, what's that multiple? And is it way lower than what I assume? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. Um, I think with these, I typically just kind of use a range of of multiples. Um, you know, next twelve months. And, uh, you know, it depends, you know, f- for Arcarnic in particular, um, you know, they tend to trade at a pretty steady, you know, six to seven times EBITDA. Um, and, you know, they have two close peers um, that trade at those valuation levels, uh, Constellium and, and Kaiser Aluminum. You know, so I try for, for stuff like this, I try not to overthink it. Um, and I just try to get directionally correct and be kind of conservative and just use a multiple um, understanding that, you know, like, like you were saying, uh, a lot of these cyclicals um, have kind of weird dynamics around multiples and, and, you know, when, when earnings peak, um, but they, you know, it's a judgment call on, on kind of, you know, how conservative you're being and in, in the numbers and the valuation and whether you're directionally right. Another argument for investing in these types of businesses is the idea that management is just going to do exactly what they should do and use the free cash flow to buy back a bunch of shares and issue a bunch of special dividends, return all that to shareholders. Is there some sort of like historical base case for what management does with these cyclical businesses when they you know, come upon like a windfall of cash? Because one thing that I'm always skeptical of is, okay, like, sure, they might generate all that cash, but like, if I'm not an actual like majority owner, like if I don't own and actually control the cash flows, it's, it's hard for me to really bet with any confidence. Like, okay, like I believe that this manager of a steel company is going to return 
all the cash flow he makes back to us um, without knowing, like, is that the case? Like in the industry, like how do managers usually act in these instances? And I don't know if you even know that or, you know, kind of kind of have a feel on what management tends to do because that does seem to be the big driver, right? It's like, oh, they'll print their market cap and free cash flow, but it's like, yes, but that doesn't mean that what they'll do with that free cash flow actually generates value. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point and great question. And uh, I wish there was some sort of research out there. I mean, it would be, it would be a super interesting case study um, to kind of go through, you know, go through history and see, and see what the answer is, because I, I don't have one. Um, but I think, uh, I think in that case, I think you have to trust management um, and look at their track record of, you know, either what they did before, or, or you know, if they do what they say. And uh, but no, it's absolutely a key question, and you know, one where that will be completely necessary to figure out if if you're going to invest in these things. Yeah, I mean, I look at like. I don't know if you've ever looked at a name like uh, Algoma Steel, which sounds like something that might be up your alley, but you know, it's just one of those names where it's like, yeah, they'll print their market cap in free cash flow like over this year and next year, and you know, they've got all these plans to buy back stock, but like, what happens if management's like, oh, we found a better use, like we want to reinvest in our business, and like, there kind of goes your whole thesis, right? Um, so that's that that's what's keeping me on the sidelines with these things. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And you know, one of, just to be clear, one of the things I like about Arconic is it's not a pure commodity business, um, right? In that it's like a lot more stable than, you know, aluminum producer, because um, it's really just taking the metal, bending it into something, and then selling it to you know, Ford or or Boeing or whatever. Right. Um, so it's more it's more just end market volume driven than it is. You know, the commodity like the aluminum price aluminum price going down actually helps them um because of the working capital benefit so but yeah 100 percent. i mean for stuff like what's the ticker astl yeah astl yeah yep. yeah i mean it's a key question what is your favorite industry like if you had to pick one to invest in i know you know kind of being a generalist going and you know kind of hiding out in 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 spaces that are working and, you know, managing stuff like that. Um, you know, that's definitely a big part of your game, but if you had to choose, like if I could only invest in one or two industries for the rest of my life, what would they be? Oof. Um, man, that's tough. I'm going to say industrials for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've always liked materials, um, industrials, materials. Why is um, that? yeah, I think, I think uh, there's a lot of good, you know, above average businesses and industrials um, that, uh, you know, people might not know about or, or don't pay as much attention to. And uh, there's a lot more kind of turnaround transformation stuff in the industrial space um, for sure. And then materials, I do think you can get an edge just kind of, you know, going through, you know, for a chemi chemicals name or, or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter, chemicals, packaging, whatever it is, and like truly understanding, uh, you know, industry capacity and supply and, and pricing power and stuff like that and how that's going to play out. Because, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think most investors do that, but 
um, you know, if you can get a view on that, that's different or, you know, you know, for example, like, like the can manufacturers, I mean, I think a lot of people have been worried about supply coming in, uh, for those guys. So, uh, you know, if you can get a view, that's actually not an issue, you know, that, that's definitely a, a variant view and, you know, you can, you can go long uh, on the wall worry that is, uh, <laughs> you know, can supply coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, I guess another added benefit of those industries is it's, uh, the, the, capital that you need to get to scale to some of the competitors is a lot larger and the barriers to entry with that are significant where like that's kind of i guess the one downside of certain software businesses is you know like your barriers to entry is spinning up a website and and you know hosting costs and server costs obviously there's a lot more that goes into it but like you know trying to build an e-commerce platform or a marketplace versus trying to build a you know major manufacturing plant, like two very different capital capacity requirements. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's funny you say that cause it's, I feel like we've, you know, come a long way in that, you know, a lot of these industrial business, like, you know, they, they have all this crazy cool stuff, you know, huge facilities, they do stuff that no one else can do, you know, and they're, you know, and then you have, some you know e-commerce business that spun up like a week ago and you know trading at 50 billion dollar valuation yep and you're like uh you know it doesn't seem fair you know <laughs> but uh you know it is what it is yeah. uh, you know maybe we're going back to kind of uh you know old school um kind of environment where that stuff does matter well a lot of that too is this like weird obsession and, you know, I say weird, I, I fell victim to it. It's just a lot of investors have this weird, like, infatuation with asset light business models. Yeah. Like, if you said the words, like, asset light in your investor presentation, it, it added two full turns to your sales multiple. Like, I firmly, <laughs> like, I firmly believe that. Um, but, you know, the flip side of that is, like, well, if you think about it, like, from an industry perspective, saying that you have an asset light business model that that isn't like a competitive differentiator and it's no barrier to entry right what you're saying is like hey like what i've created um if i don't have some sort of like obvious differentiation like what i created can easily be copied because you you don't need a lot of assets to do what i have um, which is kind of one way of thinking about it where you know there's i i i feel like there's this shift to the asset heavy type business. And when I say asset, I don't even mean necessarily like plants and stuff like that, but it could just be like a lot of capital or a lot of, you know, logistics and infrastructure. Um, those, those types of plays people are realizing like, Oh, like it's actually really hard to build another plant here or to, you know, add capacity here. Yeah. I mean, I think we, you know, the easy money policies of the last, you know, whatever years, um, it's probably a big driver of that too. And uh, obviously we're seeing that shift. So maybe we, maybe we are going back to a time where being asset heavy is actually an advantage. Um, yeah. I mean, you've seen even the hotel space, they've all gone asset light with franchising. And, uh, you know, maybe being asset heavy in the future is going to be the new thing. <laughs> I mean, who knows, but that would be pretty crazy after the last 10 years. Yeah. I'm sure the I'm sure the top tick will be when someone creates an asset heavy index ETF. <laughs> yeah. 
that tracks. That's right. <laughs> that tracks the list of like the top ten asset heavy names. That's um, right. So we've you know we've done this for a little bit over an hour. I've 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 had a blast. I've 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 learned a lot from you. Um, just kind of getting to some concluding questions here. One is a new question that I'm that I'm trying out for size, and you're going to be kind of the guinea pig here, but. Okay. What is what is one thesis you have that most people would disagree with you on? Oh, okay. Um, you know, I think a, I think a lot of people. Um, on it Twitter... doesn't have to be investing related, by the way. Okay. So it could be anything. It could be personal, psychological, social. Op- opens opens the world to possibilities. Okay. I'll stick. I'll stick to investing for this one, um, but. <laughs> it's just the first thing that came to mind because it's something um you know I'm, I'm, i've been dealing with but you know a lot of people on twitter love these micro caps you know um i i just i'm not a huge fan of micro caps in general you know it just they've got so many issues and especially like the you know i get it like you know they're underfollowed and stuff um not a lot of people are looking at them. It's easier to get an edge. But at the same time, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a few in your portfolio, in my opinion. But like, if you have a whole portfolio full of micro caps, like, uh, I, I just think it's too risky. First of all, second of all, a lot of micro caps are just garbage. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, they got corporate governance issues, management issues. Um, you know, there's a reason they're micro caps generally. Yeah. And, you know, especially like these, you know, kind of techie emerging things. Right. It's like, you, why are you public as a micro cap? Um, right. You know, like, what are you doing? So it, it, I don't know. There's, I think a lot of people love micro caps, um, but I don't really buy the view that you can't get an edge on mid caps or even large caps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's something that people over index on yeah. um yeah well there's so many stocks out there and i feel like the market cap you know like the criteria like what is small cap it just keeps getting larger and larger and like you can make the argument that like up to a billion dollars is small cap for a lot of people which you know that opens the door like you don't have to invest in these hundred million dollar or less companies and I know a lot of great microcap investors, um, and it's and it's wild because, you know, there's that there's that one study by I think it's Roger uh, Ebitson that basically says, you know, hey, if you buy the most illiquid, um, you know, smallest microcap companies you can find, like you will outperform like any any index. And I remember reading that like a year or two ago, and I'm like, man, that is unbelievable but it's definitely a strategy that is not fit for everybody and i don't think it can scale right so it's perfect for like a personal account and if you're trying to grow you know like small money like whether for yourself or your family um but like you said like it also has a bunch of corporate governance risks especially that high tech stuff right like i would much rather invest in a micro cap that's a manufacturer or an industrial or, you know, something you can like go to the plant and see. And, you know, management is like a seasoned 70 year old industry vet that owns like 30% of the company. Um, 
you know, takes a really meager salary, stuff like that. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it's tough because then the flip side of that is like, Oh, well, like who, who is going to recognize the value and how are you going to recognize the value? Because part of the reason you like the idea is also a headwind for why value might not accrete at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, liquidity too. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if you have something happen, you know, your thesis plays out and the stock doesn't move, that, <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to, it's definitely hard to run a fund that way. Um, and, you know, if you're, and, oh, that, that study you mentioned, by the way, um, did it say like what years it was? And it, I can pull it, it up. Shifted? Um, I can. I'm just curious. Yeah, I'll like, send it to you. Okay. I'm and curious because you, you know, there's, you know, like the spinoffs, you know, yeah. went through it, you know, kind of, you know, long period of outperformance, and then suddenly uh, spinoffs were where you put your, you know, garbage liabilities, um, <laughs> you yeah. know, and uh, you know the opposite happened. So I wonder if that shifted uh, over time or not, or and I wonder how much, you know. If, of that performance is from like a few outliers. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. I can send it to you. It's a uh, liquidity as an investment style. There's like a PDF for it. And then I think there's an, there's like a presentation style. Um, the years. Okay. I've got the years. It was 1971 to 2010. Okay. It's a pretty good amount of time. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's wild. Um, so yeah, I'll send that. I'll send that to you. You can you can kind of give it a read. But um, I'm looking at it here right now. Like liquidity in the lowest, the lowest liquidity uh, section, the average return for the smallest size, lowest liquidity was like, I want to say like sixteen point three percent or something, like sixteen and a half. Um, so yeah, not yeah. bad if you can, if you can stomach it, but that's if you can stomach it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question here. What, uh, where, where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter, you're anonymous, so we'll probably just <laughs> keep it to Twitter. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just Twitter. Feel free to DM me. Um, yeah, I, I do write on the sub stack a little bit. I mostly do that in my free time though, like on the weekends. So yeah. I can't promise uh, I'm going to post a bunch of stuff all the time. Right. Cause I, I try to have a life every once in a while, you know? What? Um, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely Twitter and check out the sub stack if you want. Awesome. And then the last question I ask everybody, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? And again, not investing related. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll, I'll go with Mike Tyson. Uh, Iron you Mike. know, Mike Tyson has never been mentioned on this show. You know. Probably because everyone's scared of him. Like, I would be scared yeah. to have dinner with Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, did you see um, the, the, the thing where he was on the plane and some guy, like, chucked a water ball? Out? Yeah. Freaking beat the crap out of him. <laughs> Guy deserved it. Yeah. But uh I don't know. You know, Mike Mike Tyson, 
I feel like all these guys nowadays, um, you know, fighter like Conor McGregor or whatever, uh, you know, they have this kind of personality or, you know, it's like a, you know, like a shit talking personality and, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's kind of like the Trump effect and, you know, we, we kind of see it all over. It's like no, um, you know, just to get press and get your name out there and stuff. But I feel like Mike Tyson was genuinely the way he was, you know, <laughs> like he was just a crazy dude. Like you go look at it, like the interviews he did. I don't think he was faking it. Um, so I don't know, like, and obviously he's a great boxer. I just think he would be an interesting guy to, to chat with. Um, I'm sure there's much better people to talk to, um, you know, out there in the world, but he would definitely be uh, super interesting. I mean, just to see, I forget who he came back to fight. Um, it was, you know, him versus like another huge, huge boxer. And the training videos I saw from him were unbelievable. Like the oh, yeah. dude is, I want to say he's like in his fifties, like absolute unit, like huge and no fat on him when he was trying. It was insane. Yeah. I, I, I saw those. He, uh, he looks, he looks good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, he was always so fast on his feet. He was just amazing. Like just how quick he was doing those pivots. Um, I did some, amateur boxing uh, back in the day so i used to I've, i haven't seen all of his fights but you know uh i've seen a decent amount so yeah just instead of talent. dinner you guys could just duke it out in the ring if you if you've got some <laughs> boxing experience <laughs> oh man i'm pretty sure you know, 30 seconds if i lasted 30 seconds that would be uh that would be impressive even though he's i don't even know how old he's now what 55 or something something like that yeah he's, he's still looking good Awesome. Well, Vig, this has been a sweet conversation. I'm glad we made it happen. Uh, again, for anybody that wants to follow him on Twitter, it's at chasing the Vig, and uh, go there if you want to get some get some hot takes on some industrials materials. Long short, um, yeah, we'll do this. We'll do this again sometime. Uh, and best of luck to you for the rest of the year, and keep killing it in uh, hiding out in these cool little industrial names. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and uh, talk soon. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.